Welcome to episode 1501 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, back for another special Monday edition, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Hey, yeah, it's not even special anymore. You're just the Monday regular all of a sudden. Yeah. Monday Meg. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going on vacation, which is why we're recording on Monday, which is very nice. And I'm happy for you because you had a rough last week with all the excellent prospect content that you and Eric Longenhagen produced for Fangrass, which everyone should go check out. But it took a toll on your sleep schedule. Yes, it sure did. And uh, what we learned, as I have said before, is that all-nighters in your 30s, bad idea. But yes, it is one of those things that is a lot of work and there is a lot less sleep than is ideal. But when you look at it and the outcome is what prospect week was, you're like, oh, that feels that feels worth it. So yep. yeah, people should go, uh, go read all of the great work for prospect week, all of Eric's stuff. They should go look at Fantasy Friday. We had uh, top uh, 100 dynasty rankings and redraft rankings and all sorts of good jazz. And then they should leave me alone for like seven days. <laughs> yeah. I will not be bothering you to record any emergency podcasts. So <laughs> today we're doing a season preview pod and it's NL East themed. So we will be talking to Grant McCauley about the Atlanta Braves and Megan Montemuro about the Philadelphia Phillies. But a bit of banter before we get there. And I guess everyone can expect what we are about to banter about. So I just got to say, I am really looking forward to the season starting. <laughs> it's just the the season preview pods get me excited for the season, but also the complete wall-to-wall sign-stealing scandal saturation has gotten me somewhat excited for the season because I went to the baseball subreddit on Saturday and the top like 10 to 15 stories were all sign-stealing related, which <laughs> I get it. It's a huge story. It's yeah. all newsworthy. Like there's no way around it. I mean, when Carlos Correa is talking about things the Astros did and then players like Chris Bryant and Cody Bellinger, other big stars are responding to what he said and then the Astros are responding to what those stars said. It's like, a, as Sam and I talked about last week, it's just this self-sustaining cycle where yeah. one side says something and the other side responds and then there's another response and it goes back and forth. But I think part of why it's just so all-consuming right now is that there's nothing else going on, really. So this is that dead spot in the spring training schedule where everyone's there and the players are hanging around and stretching and the reporters are there and they have to write something and they have to ask something. And so it's like the perfect formula for just nonstop side-stealing stories because there's not even spring training games going on. So this is a story that's going to go on all year. It's never going to end. But once there are games to watch and other things to cover, I think the decibel level of it will maybe recede just slightly. On the one hand, I agree with you. On the other (laughs) hand, some of the some of the things, Ben, some yeah. of the little details, some yeah. of the little details that have come out, 
you know, if we keep getting little details like that, like Carlos mm-hmm. Correa responding to Cody Bellinger by telling yes. him that the reason that Jose Altuve did not care to be disrobed was because he had a bad, unfinished tattoo on his collarbone. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those things. So he reiterated the previous excuse for Altuve not removing his jersey, which was that Altuve's wife had gotten mad about a previous time that Cross Crea had ripped off Altuve's jersey and didn't want that to happen again. And then also, yeah, Altuve had a bad unfinished tattoo that he did not want to show the world. And that's just one of those excuses that like... Look, there's no the, the evidence for a bad tattoo is no worse than the evidence for buzzers. Like we don't know that either existed, but there's just no way that anyone is going to buy the bad tattoo. Like I've been in situations in my life where I had to explain something I did or, or defend myself in some way with an explanation that was true, but also sounded untrue. Like occasionally sure. there is that sort of situation where yeah. the explanation just sounds far-fetched and you're like, look, I know this doesn't sound real, but it is. And you just got to trust me here. But that's kind of the problem. It's like no one does trust the Astros for good reason. So even if there was a bad tattoo that Jose Altuve was just terribly ashamed of, that's just no one is going to read that and say, oh, okay, bad tattoo. Sure, we've all been there. Yeah, moving <laughs> Makes on. Makes sense, yep. <laughs> so this this will probably not surprise you, Ben, as a person who knows me. I read Harriet the Spy a lot as a child. Like I, uh-huh. I was keen on investigation from an early age, and that is part of what made me an Instagram detective as a, mm-hmm. an adult human being. Mm-hmm. And I, like many other people, read this interview and thought, well, there's an easy way to look at this. And so I clicked on over to Jose Altuve's Instagram, and he has a photo from July, late July of 2019, uh, where he's he's hanging with his bros, having a good time, hanging hanging out with his Astros friends, mm-hmm. and he is tattooless. Now, that does yeah. not disprove Carlos Correa's no. uh, statement. That only establishes a timeline for us, right? Mm-hmm. We should all be, please be responsible Instagram detectives. <laughs> Do not be shoddy Instagram detectives. Your yep. Instagram detective work needs to be airtight, mm-hmm. unlike the Astros' defenses of their sign stealing. So we know that if there is a bad tattoo, it, it transpired between, you know, the last day about thereabouts of July and when he hit the walk-off. And so... On the one hand, maybe he does have a bad tattoo. Mm -hmm. Rob Manfred did a press conference on Sunday uh, where he said that he thought about stripping the title from the Astros, thought about it a lot, Mm -hmm. and then was asked about Jose Altuve's tattoo and said that it did not occur to him to check that. So, Yes, not stripping Jose Altuve. (laughs) Yeah, his stripping thoughts, very Mm -hmm. limited, I'm I'm unimpressed with your imagination, Rob. But it could be true. Maybe he has one that's bad. Uh, Collarbone seems like a dangerous place to lie about because, you know, your jerseys just shift around. We're going to see it eventually. So that seems dangerous. So maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. But also, (laughs) we might be in a situation, and I'm not saying I know this, where it isn't true. And then we... At some point, we're going to see a tattoo there, right? He can't not have a tattoo. Well, At if it some... was such a bad tattoo, maybe he got the tattoo removed. Perhaps. But <laughs> but that leaves, a, even when it's done well, that leaves a little bit of a mark is my understanding. But maybe what happened is that he read this and he went, ah, <laughs> got to go out. 
get yeah. a bad tattoo. And then we're going to learn a lot about Jose Altuve's aesthetic sense <laughs> because it's going to have to be bad because yes. if it's justifying him keeping his clothes on, which as an aside, one does not need an excuse to keep your clothes on in a public place. That does not require <laughs> your body having been marred by like, I don't know, a Chinese character that actually means something different than you mm-hmm. thought or, you know, your your wife's name misspelled or something like that. That doesn't have to be there to not want to get naked in public. That is a defensible position sans tattoo. Yeah. But now he has to have a tattoo. <laughs> and so we're going to learn what his, like, except, assuming it's not true. Again, an important proviso. Assuming it's not true, we're going to learn what Jose Altuve understands to be bad but not so bad that he can't live with it. And so I hope it's not true, even though it would mean more scandal and more talking about sign stealing and the banging scheme. And we want to watch baseball. We do care about that still, even though we have to pay attention to this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But also I want to know. I want to, yeah. I just, I enjoy learning about people's aesthetic preferences. It helps me to define and refine my own. <sighs> Now, I will say, in the interest of tattoo transparency and leaving no collarbone uncovered, there is an action shot I saw from Game 6 of the World Series in which Altuve is throwing the ball, and the top button on his jersey is unbuttoned, and the act of throwing shifts the jersey down far enough on his shoulder that you can see some of his left collarbone area, and there does appear to be some black text there. Looks like ink, possibly the letter M in cursive script, and there may even be some redness in the skin. I will link to this on the show page, and you can click on it and zoom in and reach your own conclusions. Certainly looks more like a tattoo than the wrinkles in Altuve's jersey looked like a buzzer. And of course the jersey comes down just enough that you can get this little tantalizing glimpse of potential tattoo. If it were covered up, you would know nothing. If it were just a little more open, you'd have conclusive evidence, but no. And that's just perfectly fitting, because every step of this scandal has been sensitive. Sensational. And yes. I, I just like a bad tattoo suddenly enters into it. Like every step of it just makes it that much easier to talk about and go digging for evidence about and just like garbage cans and audible bangs and banging scheme and fake Twitter accounts and buzzers and code breaker and dark arts. It's like Pulp Fiction, not the movie, but the literary genre. How can you not talk about the bad tattoo excuse? It's just, it sounds so preposterous, even if it's real, that it just adds another layer to the story, and you add that to the banging and the buzzers, and just, it's all just, (laughs) you would not have believed any of this before it actually happened, and it just gets more and more confounding with every step, and just harder and harder to move on from. Because uh, every press conference, every quote, every player who's asked to comment on it fuels the story more. And it's a big story. I don't blame them. I don't blame them for having strong opinions about it and expressing them. But it is not what Rob Manfred wants, obviously. You know, he gave his press conference on Sunday. I'll first say, um, and I am not the first person to point this out, but MLB Network carried Bull Durham. (laughs) Like they were doing another airing of Bull Durham. Yeah. 
good movie, but <laughs> great movie. Probably on a hundred times a year. So yeah, maybe available that one. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think that we should prioritize hearing from the commissioner in his first public press conference following all of this. So that's just a little programming note from me to the world. But I think that you know he gave this, and you're like, what is he gonna say that's gonna satisfy anyone? This has gone so right. far. It's gone so far down the line. There have been so many accusations and recriminations and all of that. But I will say that I know how it feels to be tired and to be sassy when you shouldn't be as a result of being tired. I just did prospect week. But I don't think that it's a particularly great look for the commissioner after he has asserted himself as a uh, champion of civil discourse to be sassy with reporters who have unearthed other parts of this Mm -hmm. and given new detail to it and sort of changed our understanding of the balance of responsibility between players and the front office, you know, for better or worse, like this is the baseball scandal we have. And the question of how those two parts of the organization co-mingled and cross-pollinated and reinforced and helped each other adapt or inspired one another to adapt in this is really important Mm -hmm. to our understanding of the sort of full scope of it. And so I can understand being tired and being sassy. And I can understand being irritated that your private memos have been leaked, but that's also just like part of the the gig. That's the job. Mm-hmm. And so I would invite a reconsideration of tone. Yep. Yeah. Reporters report. That's yep. what they're supposed to do. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, Jared Diamond, who did report the Codebreaker and dark arts stuff that was contained in this private letter that Manfred sent to Jeff Luno. He asked that question about why it wasn't in Manfred's report. And yes, Manfred offered a sarcastic, very, very sassy congratulations to Diamond for breaking that story. And his only explanation really was that, well, I'll just play his explanation. This is about a one-minute clip, which includes most of his answer. Well, um, first of all, I think that it's important, um, you know, congratulations, you got a private letter that, you know, I sent to a club official, nice reporting on your part. Unfortunately, I think that there's sort of a misunderstanding about what that letter exactly is. Um, We are process oriented. When we get to a point in an investigation that we think someone may be subject to discipline, we give them a summary, usually of the facts in the worst light from their perspective, in order to give them an opportunity to respond to those facts to make sure that we have it right. That letter um, that you reported on was such a document. Um, It did not reflect um, our final conclusion as to the facts. Um, and, you know, we didn't really expect that it was going to be become public. He also said that you have to edit yourself, and he didn't want to have a very long report, so he couldn't put every detail in there was one of his explanations. So, yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. not the most satisfying answer. Yeah, it's especially unsatisfying given that Jared went to, to great pains in his reporting for the journal to point out that the reason that you know, that they weren't able to substantiate some of the claims and that there were conflicting reports around what Lunau knew. So I, I, you know, he was diligent Mm -hmm. and careful in his reporting. And so the sarcastic congratulations was, I think, perhaps not the best. Yeah, I think really what 
should happen now what the Astros should do is stop talking (laughs) for a while just stop just stop trying to explain and justify because you're not winning anyone over you're just fueling another news cycle you're giving people more ammo nothing you say is going to convince anyone of anything or make them think much more positively of you and if it's something about bad tattoos then it's probably going to make you sound (laughs) even less credible like All the Astros can do now, I mean, they said sorry. Aside from Jim Crane, I thought at least some of the Astros did a decent job of saying sorry, and I don't know that they could say sorry in some perfect way that everyone would say, we forgive you. So they did that. They took their lumps to a certain extent there, aside from Crane again. And now I feel like all they can really do is go out and play. And if they are still good at baseball... That's really the best and only response they can offer here. If they go win 100 games or something, I guess not everyone will believe that they're ever doing it clean. But they can say, hey, look, this is all out there and we're still really good at baseball. We're all still hitting really well and winning lots of games. So maybe they can just let the performance speak for them. That's basically it. That's all they can hope to do at this point. Like. I guess you could say that their audience for these comments that they're making is not everyone on Twitter, is not fans of all the other teams. Maybe they are speaking to Astros fans. So in the way that, say, politicians will make inflammatory statements that will get them roundly criticized, but it's the sort of statement that, oh, this is something they're saying for their base, right? And Mm -hmm. yes, this is something that may anger the nation at large, but maybe this is something that their constituents would approve of. And so that's why they're saying it. I guess you could say that's also true of the Astros, that maybe some Astros fans are eating up the bad tattoo explanation while it makes everyone else more angry. And maybe those are the people they really need to placate more than anyone else. That's the most positive interpretation. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, I get it. Like if you actually didn't cheat in 2019 and Bellinger is saying you cheated in 2019, I get why you would want to come out and say, no, it was only the earlier seasons. But I think they just kind of have to live with this. They brought it on themselves. And a big part of the consequence here, since they were not actually suspended or punished directly, is that no one believes them anymore. That's uh, that's one of the pains that they have to suffer here. So no one to blame but themselves. And no one's going to be shedding any tears on their behalf. Yeah, I think that it is granted in a different context, but probably another good example for this organization to learn a lesson that they struggled to learn around Roberto Suna. You don't get to decide how long other people talk about your behavior. You just mm-hmm. don't. And I think that's probably a lesson that the commissioner would be well served to learn also, right? He doesn't get to decide how long we're going to talk about this. And while I appreciate the instinct to defend your friend, particularly given, and this doesn't absolve him from his role, but particularly given what the data suggests was a pretty limited usage on the part of Jose Altuve of the bangs, mm-hmm. didn't he didn't bang much, just mm-hmm. was chased. <laughs> I understand the instinct to defend his uh, production and performance and the legacy he has on that team, but, you know, they really just need someone in-house to say, you gotta, we just have to eat this. We just have to eat it because 
nothing we say is going to help. It's only going to make people more defensive. It's only going to inspire another round of very justifiable complaints on the part of players from other organizations. I understand why it hasn't happened quite this way, but like the guys who were on that team and have left Houston and are on other teams seem to have comported themselves much better, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Their apologies seemed much more voluntary. And I think that they've been now allowed to sort of sit and be done uh, Mm -hmm. in a way that is partly because they're on other teams, but is partly because they just, you know, they took their lumps and now they're being quiet. Yeah, right. (sighs) Yeah. And the reason why this will never go away, A, as we said last week, like every time an Astros hitter gets buzzed or hit, then Mm -hmm. I probably should use a different verb than buzzed when talking about Astros hitters. But then the question will be, oh, was that intentional? And Manfred has spoken about how he has warned all of the managers already or half the managers and will soon warn the other half about how he does not want to see any retaliation. And one would expect that umpires would be instructed to issue warnings or even just ejections if that sort of thing happens because you don't want that to get out of hand but that'll be a storyline if the Astros win a lot that will be a storyline if they don't win if they slump that will be a story and even if they have a great year well they just had a great year in 2019 they had their best team yet and they got to game seven of the world series and I don't think that has made many people think, oh, well, see, they were just a, a great team all the time. I think people still question whether they were doing anything. Yeah. And that came up in Manfred's press conference on Sunday, and he was asked about the buzzers. And the way he put it was that since players owned up to what they did in 2017 and 2018, and they were very consistent about that, he said it was hard to figure out why they would lie about buzzers in 2019. He said they were similarly consistent about that, which is not all that convincing to someone who thinks that there were buzzers because just because they owned up to one crime that was on tape does not mean that they would necessarily own up to other crimes. And so there's no evidence of it, but it also can't be disproved, really, which was another thing that came up in the press conference because Manfred was asked if he was 100% sure that there were no buzzers. And he said he's not, he can't be, which is kind of the problem once you cheat once in this very elaborate way. You open yourself up to accusations of cheating forever because there's no way to disprove that someone is cheating. And even if you look at the stats and say, well, it doesn't maybe seem to have benefited them that dramatically, you can't prove that it didn't. You can't prove that it didn't make the difference at some crucial time. There's just no way to completely clear them then or now or in the future, frankly. So this is a a stain that I think it takes, I don't know how long to erase, really. It just goes to show that Rob Manfred never went to a party in high school that involved (laughs) both underage drinking and property destruction. (laughs) Yeah. It does make me kind of curious. I I wonder, given just this vociferous response from other players, whether players would have supported some discipline for Astros players because Manfred has consistently said that he granted immunity to the Astros because he wanted to find out what they had done. He wanted them to be honest, but also because he anticipated that if he did try to suspend them, there would be hearings and appeals and grievances and that the Players Association might have a case there because 
Luno and Hinch were derelict in their duties and didn't warn the players. And so maybe they could have gotten off or at least gotten their suspensions reduced on that technicality, even though I think they all knew that what they were doing was wrong. If they were not officially informed of that by the people who should have informed them, then that could be an argument that could be used in their defense. But I do kind of wonder now, given how upset players seem to be about this, whether there would have been all that much appetite on the Players Association's part to defend them. Because on the one hand, you want to defend them just as a matter of precedent in case of future suspensions about other things, potentially. On the other hand, players really seem upset about this. And I guess there could be an element of performative upset where, uh, you know, maybe some players who did some things on, on their own teams in those years and weren't caught. I wonder whether some of them are just silently waiting for those things to come to light and are not vocal about it or are vocal to try to show that they didn't do those things. It's hard to say, but in the way that players all kind of collectively decided that they did not like PED use and they didn't want to feel pressured to use PEDs, and then the Players Association essentially supported testing and discipline there, I wonder whether the same would have or or could happen with sign stealing. Yeah, I think that there's probably a not – I think – what am I trying to say? I think that Manfred is not wrong that he probably got more candid information as a result of promising that they wouldn't be suspended provided they were truthful. And, you know, again, they might have been truthful in some instances and sort of omit things in others. But I I think the main goal was to shut this down and be done with it. And he should have probably known that that wasn't going to happen. And so Mm -hmm. if it gets dragged out in a grievance, who cares? Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, the the union, like part of a union's job is to defend their members in the case of sanctioned by an employer. I think that the player pool is probably sophisticated enough to understand that simply fulfilling that obligation does not necessarily mean that you are taking the side of members who cheated at the expense of other members over those members who suffered consequences as a result of the cheating. So I think that the players probably could have figured that all out. And I hope that you know, they are able to, even if they are internally divided and there is consternation amongst them as a result of this, able to sort of understand the broader need for cohesion and solidarity going into a CBA negotiation. But we got a lot of time before that happens. So I have a feeling that they're going to be able to sort themselves out on that score. But yeah, it's, I don't know. Like, <laughs> he could have decided to suspend the players who were still Astros. Mm-hmm. Just called it a day. I'm sure that that would have cleared it right up. We wouldn't be talking <laughs> yeah. about it anymore. Yeah, no, it'd just be over, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Manfred has mishandled this, but I don't know that another commissioner would have done much better. It's uh, it's just a situation where I think almost inevitably the way it came to light. Now, if they had very proactively when these yeah. rumors started spreading in 2017, 2018 come out and made it public then – then maybe, and and he was asked about that during the press conference, and he said, you know, there were sort of informal protests or or teams coming to MLB and saying, we know they have our signs, and he said, well, it was difficult to prove that, it was difficult to support it, and he essentially said that without the reporting and without Mike Fires coming forward, this would not be happening.
happening even now. So I don't know to what extent they deserve to be let off the hook for that. I think a large part of it is that they did just sort of sleep on this for years, as happened with the PED story. So You know, Manfred is under contract for like four more years and he's just entering a CBA negotiation. And I think that is the owner's priority and he works for the owners. And yes, maybe this is spiraling out of control a little bit and it's been bad for baseball. And if that finally does end the ever climbing trend line with revenue, then that's pretty much the only thing that I think could actually get him on the wobbly chair for now. I think owners are happy as long as he gets them a good deal and more money. Yeah. I do think that, you know, the line has been drawn that these guys are not, that the players are not going to face punishment barring him, I guess, learning that they have lied, right? He did sort of allude to that in his press conference Mm -hmm. that their immunity was predicated on them being truthful. So I guess if we were to learn that the potential punishment would be back on the table, I do think that if we were to ever get to that point, it's probably pretty important to make sure that the remaining members of the Astros front office who built the thing (laughs) (laughs) built Code Breaker suffer some consequence. It remains very strange that those folks are still part of the organization. I just saw a tweet about that and Click said that those employees are still employed and he said that the organization will have a zero tolerance policy moving forward, which sounds sort of like when Jeff Luno said that the Astros had a zero tolerance policy for domestic violence immediately after trading for Roberto Asuna. It's like zero tolerance unless it happened just before we said we had this policy, which is just not really zero. It seems like a non-zero level of tolerance but <laughs> anyway <laughs> oh goodness i yeah. i can't wait to i can't wait to see what new things we know this time next week <laughs> i know yeah if this happens in the future if there's ever a future sign stealing scandal i don't think the players would get off scot-free like no. this because a you can't argue that they didn't know <laughs> that it was wrong because this is the biggest story in baseball and b it wouldn't be as important probably to have the details come to light because we know what this sign stealing scandal was so if there's another one well it's just more sign stealing and I, I think they would probably be punished pretty harshly if it happened again yeah and in addition to being a civil discourse guy we have also learned that rob manfred is a precedent guy he's just yes. a bunch of different kinds of guys He's just a, he's a multifaceted individual. Yeah. One of the only nice things that's coming out of this is you Darvish's tweets. Oh, (laughs) we are not worthy. Make him king. He is the best. (laughs) He responded to a tweet of a picture of the Astros World Series trophy by saying, gorgeous trash can. (laughs) I like it. Uh, He's just the best. He is the best. Make him commissioner. Let's go. Anyway, we don't have to start every episode with half an hour of sign-stealing scandal banter, but how can we not, I guess, as long as there are new developments, and there just always are (laughs) new developments. So I will say there is maybe one way in which this could have been even worse for baseball, which is if the Astros had won the 2019 World Series, which you'll recall they came quite close to doing. So baseball owes Howie Kendrick and that foul pole big time, because if the Astros were the reigning World Series champions as all of this were 
groundbreaking and the legitimacy of the last three World Series was called into question, I think the level of anger would be even greater. Even if it couldn't be established that they cheated in 2019, a lot of people would believe and do believe that they did. And even if they won that one clean just to see those players profit and celebrate and have a parade. So we knew that was a clutch homer, but in retrospect, even clutcher than we knew at the time. Same goes for the AL MVP vote, which Alex Bregman was pretty close to winning. And that wouldn't have gone over well when these revelations surfaced either. So as unlikely as it seems, possibly could have been worse. That said, I'm sorry that we are not talking about Shohei Otani getting his driver's license because that happened for the first time. And that's a wholesome story. And uh, one I find inspiring as someone who still has not obtained his driver's license. Maybe I should follow in Shohei's footsteps. Yeah. He said that he hasn't uh, gone on the highway yet. So Mm. he's, you know, we probably haven't heard the last of it. So maybe his first time braving uh, freeway traffic in the greater Los Angeles area will come after uh, the sign stealing stuff has resolved itself and then we can revisit it. You think he drove on any two-way streets? (laughs) Good, Ben. Nailed it. (laughs) All right. Only other thing we should probably mention is that there was a raise for minor league players' salaries announced just because we track developments in this story. This is not a huge one, frankly. It it doesn't go into effect until 2021, and the pay raises are still to pretty low levels. So like Class A players, their minimum pay is going from $290 a week to $500 a week. So you figure that's, you know, what, $2,000 a month, and players are playing for five months a year that they're being paid for. So that's (laughs) $10,000 right there, and that is not really a year's salary. (laughs) So... It's uh, an improvement, I guess, but it's one of those improvements that kind of makes you think even more, why not just go all the way and just uh, do this in a satisfactory fashion instead of bit by bit? Yeah, that was the other part of uh, his press conference that we like, didn't talk about, but he was asked about the minor league contraction, uh, the mm-hmm. commissioner was, I should say. And yeah, the pay raise stuff is probably why my reaction to him affecting a fussy tone about the, the conditions uh, that players find themselves playing in really rang hollow. Yeah. Really rang hollow, Rob. I understand that complicating our understanding of uh, minor league owners who are uh, not exactly, you know, famously generous to minor Mm -hmm. leaguers themselves is useful because it's sort of weird to paint them as champions of, you know, minor league baseball players. You know, it's it's good to have a nuanced and accurate conversation about these sorts of things. But also, Mm -hmm. sir. (laughs) He was also asked a couple times about the tomahawk chop. And he essentially said that he's been too busy with the sign-stealing scandal to talk to the Braves about it, so he kind of punted on that question. But we will ask that question, at least, of our guest in our preview segment as we ask about many, many other aspects of the Atlanta Braves. So we will be back in just a moment to talk about the Braves.
All right, it is time to talk some Braves baseball. And to do that, we are joined once again by Grant McCauley, who hosts the From the Diamond podcast and covers the Braves for 680 The Fan. Hey, Grant, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you guys for having me again. Yeah, good to have you back. So this was another fairly active offseason for the Braves, and we will talk about some of the players they acquired. It does seem like a pattern, though, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, that they have mostly targeted players on short-term contracts. So they haven't really been in play for guys going to very long deals, even though there were some real top-of-the-market free agents available this offseason. Even the four-year deal for Josh Donaldson, I, I guess, was a little too rich for their blood, and they've had great luck, obviously, and great success success with Donaldson on that one-year deal and Keichel, and now they're going with Hamels on a one-year deal and also Ozuna. So they have sprung for some guys on slightly longer contracts too, like Will Smith. But is that sort of a philosophy that comes from the top or something that you think the front office is doing? Or are they just thinking that there's value in getting guys on short-term contracts? I think kind of something from all three of those buckets would be in play because obviously the Braves in terms of payroll has been trending up the last few years, but they've spent a lot of time kind of hanging around between, I want to say 16, 17, and maybe, you know, number 20 in terms of overall Major League Baseball payrolls. And that's changed since they moved into their new ballpark, which was something they said that would change. So I think that they open up based on projections I've seen of opening day salaries at around number 10, number 11, perhaps, depending on maybe some money that gets spent here or there in the last couple of weeks and maybe the couple of weeks to come. But long story short, I think that they find the value, obviously, in the player. And that's the thing that Alex Anthopoulos is really big on. But doing some of these shorter term contracts might be a function of the fact that the Braves have not had the most money put into them from a payroll perspective from their owner, which is an out-of-state entity that really doesn't necessarily seem like they want to spend big dollars in free agency and go out there and be super aggressive to sign, you know, an Anthony Rendon or a Garrett Cole, or I I don't want to say not even Josh Donaldson, because I think age might've been a bigger factor in that than anything, but they are trying to find players that can help them contend on an annual basis, but also keeping in mind that they do have some fairly great prospects hanging around in the minors. But I think that at least on my end, they're trying to walk that line of, determining how great are these prospects going to be, not necessarily blocking them, but also understanding that there's a lot of attrition in prospects. You can't count on everyone to become Ronald Acuna Jr. or Ozzy Albee. Some of them are not going to hit, literally and figuratively. So I think they're trying to strike that balance of spending some money, but trying to spend it smartly. And I think that they've done a pretty good job of that so far. But obviously Cole Hamels you know, coming to camp with a shoulder injury already, that's probably not the news that they wanted to get to start things off in spring training. We'll circle back on Hamels in a second, but I'm, I'm curious, you brought up Acuna and Albies, and obviously those guys are now signed to long-term extensions at rates that I think we could uh, comfortably describe as below market. Um, and so I'm curious if you think that this this approach to free agency is going to continue in the, in the future or if they might end up, uh, because they have those guys locked in at very reasonable rates and they can count on production from them for the foreseeable future, maybe see um, a change and how aggressive they are with the contracts that they sign going forward because they do have that, uh, what do we call it, financial flexibility in the payroll? (laughs) Yeah, and the financial flexibility was a really popular term around here last winter, and that was before the Ozzy Albies extension, the Ronald Acuna Jr. (laughs) extension. But I would say like cost certainty that you have on stars like that, and even to go like a layer further, I mean, Mike Soroka, Max Fried are guys that are going to be making league minimum salaries or close to it until they jump into arbitration. And even then, they're not due big raises for a couple of three more years. 
And while they do, I'm sure, want to focus on extending Freddie Freeman at some point, he's a free agent in a couple of years, and they'll probably want to do it before he reaches free agency. But having Acuna and Ozzy Albies and you know guys like that at rates that you really you know projecting forward how much more money you'll be able to spend in other areas, I would hope that that is an indicator that they're going to go out and spend that money on the star-level free agents, and not just for a year, but you know, getting guys in and three, four, five-year deals. I mean, I do not expect the Braves to be the next team that hands out a $300 million-plus contract to a free agent, but on that same token, and you know, maintaining a spot kind of in the top 10 payrolls, even if you're on the fringe of the top 10, and there's some really good players out there. And I know, Ben, you mentioned there's a good free agent class that we just saw mm-hmm. this winter. So uh, over the next two, three, four years, and, and with the Albies and Acuna contracts going forward, they don't really have a lot of money tied up. And I'm sure that's not an accident in terms of the way Alex Anthopoulos has been trying to put things together. And it makes me hopeful because the core of the team is locked up that they can add to that core. But I think some bigger and bolder moves have to be forthcoming in the next few years in order to maintain this playoff window, because we never know how long or how short that kind of window might be. Let's circle back on Hamels now and just get this out of the way while we bum out Braves fans. What is the latest on his shoulder and kind of what is the projected timeline for his return? And then I guess subsequent to that, who is in line for that fifth starter job? I'm a reformed Mariners fan, so am I going to get to see Felix on the opening day roster? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I'm excited about King Felix. And from the images I got to see his spring training, and I haven't gotten a chance to make it down to camp and really talk with a lot of guys yet, but seeing Felix Hernandez in a Braves uniform was pretty cool. Uh, and just because of what he's been over the last you know, decade and a half almost, coming up and really establishing himself as a top guy uh, for a very long time, over a decade, as one of the best pitchers in baseball, you know, that kind of thing excites me. But we, I think we know right now that he's not the same guy that he was. But that's not to say that he might not find that career renaissance similar to what Anibal Sanchez did in a Braves uniform a couple of years ago. Uh, so I would say, yeah, he's in line in that fifth spot. And if anything, the Hamels injury, which they don't believe to be overly serious, he will be shut down for the first three weeks of camp and won't begin throwing until that puts us at mid-March, basically, if we're kind of being optimistic, which means he will open the season on the injured list, which means that the Braves will have to replace him for at least a handful of starts until he's deemed ready to go. So I'd say mid to late April is kind of an optimistic appraisal of where Hamels is as far as making his Braves debut in the regular season. So you put Hernandez along with Sean Newcomb, a big lefty who had some success in the bullpen last year, but has shown some flashes in the rotation for the Braves. But a guy I would keep my eye on as as one that I really would love to see step up and grab one of those spots is Kyle Wright, who was the Braves' first rounder a few years ago. Uh, really, really solid pitcher. Didn't exactly get, I would say, a fair shake in rotation last year. He made the opening day club and was back down in Triple A Gwinnett within a couple of weeks and had to work through a lot of stuff early on. But they've got this wealth of pitching prospects. Wright, Bryce Wilson, uh, Ian Anderson is their top guy right now that has not pitched in the big leagues yet. And then you can kind of go out with another couple of guys like Tuki Toussaint or, uh, or what have you. So there's a lot of depth. But I would think that King Felix, if he's healthy and can come in and give them an indication that you know, whatever adjustments he needs to make with the drop with the loss of velocity to make up for the last couple of years for him. If he can kind of reinvent himself, I think he's got a really realistic shot of jumping into the Braves rotation, at least to start the year. 
Yeah, you touched on something there that I wanted to ask about, which is that the Braves really pitched this as a pitching-centric rebuild, and they drafted a ton of pitchers. They used a higher percentage of their picks over a multi-year period on pitchers than any other team, but, well, the Cubs, actually, and the Cubs haven't had much luck with homegrown pitching either. But I think the Braves have really ended up winning back-to-back division titles in large part because of position players and Acuna and Albies, and those guys are the face of this rebuild, even though it, it didn't really start out that way so they got where they wanted to go but it's guys like that or you know Donaldson who have really been driving this and and I'll ask you about you know Soroka and Freed and some of the successes they have had but does this still have the potential to be a team that is very deep and rich in pitching because some of the guys that we're coming along are no longer in the organization or, or washed out already, but then there are others, and you just mentioned a few of them who maybe are coming along a little later than expected, but could still kind of provide the the sort of pitching staff that was envisioned. Because, you know, when they got to the playoffs last year, I think Newcomb was the only homegrown guy in the entire bullpen. It was all people that they had picked up elsewhere, which is unusual given that the Braves had so many young pitching prospects. Yeah, the bullpen has really been the one area that, as I look at it, just and I think from the same angle that you do, if you've got all these great young arms in your system, you know where are the guys that maybe they don't end up being in your starting five, but they're great arms, so perhaps they can become bullpen pieces. I think the Braves have been a little bit hesitant to start moving guys to the bullpen in the minor leagues and reassigning their role, basically, at I would say like so that there was a learning curve, so that they could maybe get a little bit more used to doing that than coming up to the big leagues, getting knocked around a bit, getting sent back down, and then getting demoted to the bullpen, so to speak. I'm not really sure how they solve that, what the answer to that is going to be, but as far as arm talent is concerned, I would think that, yes, they should be able to grow a few more relievers in the system, even if they're drafting relievers. If you want to do that, it can be a a dangerous game sometimes. But uh, either way, the rebuild itself, pitching was front and foremost, or first and foremost for them because they just didn't have much pitching to speak of in the system. So giving a couple of three years worth of pitching heavy drafts made a lot of sense. But the one B to that one A of a, of a two part plan was that we'll go out internationally and get the top position players there. And that's how we'll put together the minor league system. That was always how it was pitched to us before all the sanctions came down. And then the Braves international draft spending obviously is crippled for a number of years. So that kind of changed. But they did hit on Ronald Acuna Jr., and they did hit on Ozzie Albies, and neither of those were huge bonus guys either. So, you know, call it good scouting, call it good fortune, call it both if you want to, or just call it talented players that found their way to the big leagues and this is who they are. But um, I think that in some ways you have to get maybe a little bit fortunate that some of your, maybe not your central plans, just work out better than you expected so that yeah. when some of your main players like a Colby Allard or some of those guys don't necessarily come up and establish themselves as the front of the rotation arm. Hey, we went out and traded for Max Fried, so that kind of worked itself out in that respect. So uh, it, it's hard to lay out the plan, I guess, long term, because minor league players or prospects in general, are. It, it's really hard to know exactly who's going to be able to stick and stay in the big leagues and become productive. But I think having more pitching than not is great, but knowing exactly what to do with it and figuring out you know, which guys are going to fit what roles has been a fluid situation for the Braves. and. They had to rebuild that bullpen last year because the group that they had first couple of months wasn't getting it done. And I think that they realized, hey, maybe experience over youth in the bullpen is the way we need to go. And that's what they did. 
Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about Soroka because he's coming off this fantastic first full season at age 21, an all-star and rookie of the year runner-up and sixth place Cy Young finish. And I was sort of surprised that he didn't start game two in the division series, that it was Fultonevich who started game two and then lined up for game five because Soroka had been so great for the Braves all season. And I would have thought that they would want him potentially getting multiple starts there. And I don't know if that had something to do with his big home road splits and thinking that there was something significant there yeah well i guess i'll i'll ask you whether you think that made sense but also just uh, what the expectations for soroka should be because he had ace-like stats in a lot of ways but in other ways he's not really the typical ace type profile in that he doesn't strike out a ton of guys he's more of a, a dallas keichel ish ground ball ish type pitcher and so the defense independent stats didn't quite match up with the sub three era so did he set expectations too high, I guess, with how good he was, or can he be that good again? I really feel like Mike Soroka's best is still to come, and that's just based on watching him pitch through the minors and also knowing the exact kind of mind that Mike Soroka has for pitching. If you talk to him, you would think that, and I, I say this from meeting him at 17, 18 years old, you would think that this is a guy that has years of experience, and he just loves the matchup and the the mental side of the game as much, if not more than the actual physical go out and pitch and execute thing. And the marriage of those two things is something that you don't find in young pitchers. And, you know, we always hear that cliche. It was used with Fulton Evich, especially, Hey, when's he going to learn how to be a pitcher and not just a thrower? Mike Soroka never really had to go through that whole thing. Or if he did, maybe he was 11 or 12 years old, but uh, be that as it may, I I think he's, he has a tremendous arsenal. He has a tremendous, you know, the makeup side for him. We throw it around a lot. It's it's hard to quantify, but you know you can kind of judge people by those characteristics and know maybe what to expect, how they're going to handle the challenges that come with it. But Mike Soroka is a guy that just never seems to be rattled and always seems to have that plan. And I think that that attribute for him makes me believe that as he continues to grow and mature, and he's still continuing to kind of grow into his body, and he's a big kid as well, even at his coming into his age twenty two season. So to kind of get back to, I guess, projecting forward and also building off of last year's stats, I think that Soroka's right about where I expect him to be as kind of a floor as a starter. And that's saying a lot because he had a ter- terrific season and yeah. very well should have started two games in the National League Division Series. And the decision to go with him on the road was because he had been so good. And they wanted to have a plan, I guess, for he went out and got Dallas Keuchel because his pedigree was he's a proven veteran starting pitcher who had postseason success. He was pretty good with the Braves. He ended the season on a terrific roll of seven or eight starts before kind of hitting a bump in the road, his last one, but not something that I would have worried about. So I understood why they did it. Uh, Fulton Evich in game two, he had also been red hot and his game two was terrific. It was a, it was a great start. His game five was not terrific. And I don't know if that's a, a, the result of the Cardinals seeing him twice in a week or what it was. But Mike Soroka is a guy that's going to get those two starts. If the Braves go to the division series this year, he's going to be, I think, the guy that they lean on more than any other guy going forward. And I think he proved it last season. I think he's going to build on that this year if healthy. And in the postseason last year, he was terrific there. So uh, he, I think, is going to be their central guy moving forward. If they could get a veteran that goes with him for a long time, or, or at least the next you know four, five, six years coming up, uh, that would be terrific. Or maybe Max Fried will be that guy as well. So we'll, yeah. uh, 
We'll see what those guys are able to do. Yeah, especially if Soroka is a guy who never really gets rattled, then you'd think even yeah. more that you probably shouldn't make too much of the home away splits. It wasn't even like he was terrible at home. He had a oh, right. 4.14 ERA at home and a 1.55 away, which is great, obviously. But, you know, 13 starts one place, 16 starts in another place probably doesn't mean a whole lot. So who knows? It doesn't mean that would have changed anything. And obviously, Fultonevich was great in his first start. So you never know. Let's uh let's talk about the bullpen for a little bit because in the first half last year by our stats at Fangraphs, Atlanta had the 21st ranked bullpen in baseball and they actually got worse in the second half despite um the addition of Melanson who did pitch well but the the overall production dipped. One of their few multi-year deals this offseason was bringing in Will Smith. They still have Melanson, they have Shane Green, they have Luke Jackson. How do you see them deploying these guys this year cuz obviously they have a couple of guys in that bullpen now with closer experience, what is the the current thinking on how they're going to construct that bullpen? I think right now, going into the season, the biggest thing that they wanted to do was just improve the quality of the depth that they had out there. Because when they opened the 2019 season, they just did not have a group that by either uh, experience or the results that they were about to put up or because of injury was able to really go to the post and, and convert some leads into wins. They just weren't able to do that as well last year. And Luke Jackson kind of came along and, and saved the whole team, if you want to call it that, or at least the whole group of relievers, because the Braves were running out of answers at that point, because Arodis Vizcaino got hurt. They ended up trading him. He didn't pitch again after that. A.J. Minter had a bad spring training because he got in some kind of little fender bender, wasn't able to throw, went down to Gwinnett for exactly one game. They brought him right up, and that ultimately, I think, turned out to be something that derailed his entire season. So both the guys that were going to lean on to close games just weren't options from the month of April on uh, for all intents and purposes. So Luke Jackson came and stepped in in a really big way for them as they tried to right that ship. And I'm kind of surprised that the numbers don't bear out that it was uh, a better bullpen in the second half. It was certainly easier to watch from a blood pressure standpoint. <laughs> but Melanson's the guy that I think they're going to look at to close games, at least to start the year. And then Will Smith is somebody that they can deploy in a number of situations from the seventh inning on. And especially with the three batter, minimum that you have for relievers now, they're not concerned at all about which inning or which exact matchups Will Smith is going to get if they want to have him in there to face one tough lefty hitter, and he's got to go through a couple of righties to get it done. I think that they'll obviously use him that way. Having Shane Green back, I think, just helps from that experience standpoint. He was very good in Detroit. I thought he was very unlucky in Atlanta, just from the eye test. He wasn't getting hit hard every time out, but just didn't really have very good results, especially the first few times out. Uh, but the linchpin to me of the guys that they got that really starts to lock that depth into place is bringing back Chris Martin for a couple of years, strike thrower, and a guy that when I go back and look at the things that went wrong in the National League Division Series, Chris Martin suffering a strained oblique really kind of threw things off kilter in the late innings of a Game 1 lead for the Braves. They lost that game. They lost Martin for the series. And when you go back and look at how that five-game series was bearing out, uh, that Ultimately, if you just win one of those games, game one or game four, you don't have to go through the game five debacle that was. So uh, that's a group that they're going to lean on a ton, and they love the depth of that group. And that's one of the things I think that when you have a rotation that may not necessarily have the big horse at the front, the, the name value guy, like a Garrett Cole or, or whoever it may be that you know the Yankees went out and signed because they felt they needed that. I don't know when and if the Braves will ever go out and spend that big money on a starting pitcher in that way, but I think they've got a good enough group of starters to back them up with a really strong bullpen seems to be the play that they want to make, at least for this year and uh, possibly the next couple of years, 
as they mature some of these guys and Mike Soroka becomes an established quantity and perhaps Max Fried and some of these other guys in the minors will step up uh, behind those two and really start to establish themselves as well. Yeah, they seem to have buttoned things up really nicely there. One place that they didn't end up adding was replacing Donaldson at third. You know, they didn't sign Rendon. They didn't make any of these um, big uh, trades for Brian or Arenado that they were rumored to be in conversations about. I don't know how sincere those rumors were, but I'm curious how much leash you think they're going to give to Camargo and Austin Riley and how you expect the playing time to be divvied up there. Is this a spot where if they falter, they're going to kind of let it ride, or would this be a place where they would maybe look to make an addition at the deadline if they're not satisfied with the production in the first half. Yeah, I definitely think the first half is where we're going to see this thing play out, but I think we're going to get a pretty good indication well before that happens of, you know, who's going to step up and really take this job. Johan Camargo was one of the most productive, and I say that in a, uh, you may not have gone into 2018 expecting him to be one of your most productive hitters, but he was, and he earned that third base job, and he lost it when they signed Donaldson because they were simply looking for more power in the lineup, and Donaldson proved to be the answer to that and did exactly what he was brought in to do. But Camargo got bumped to that super utility spot, never really seemed to be comfortable moving around, didn't get a lot of at-bats early. I felt that he wasn't necessarily in the in the best shape either. His play in the field was kind of lethargic at best, just to kind of put it nicely. And he just kind of felt just not like the same player and, and kind of unreliable. And that opened the door, I think, for Riley to have the opportunity to, when he came up and just had to play in the outfield, to show the Braves that, hey, this is a guy that can make an impact in the major leagues from an offensive standpoint and not even at the position that he's grown up playing. So I think that they have every intent to give Austin Riley an opportunity to be their long-term answer at third base. If not there, you know, maybe he does end up playing left field. If he figures out how to hit, everything else I think for him is going to fall into place. And he's been a guy that throughout his minor league career has gotten better each and every stop along the way. So I think he's capable of doing it and showed some flashes last year that have to have you pretty excited about the fact that he's a legit 30-plus homer hitter. Camargo, meanwhile, is just going to have to basically flush last season. Statistically, he was the Braves' worst hitter, and that includes he came back from the minors after getting demoted late in the year and absolutely caught fire. If he hadn't done that, you know those offensive numbers would look even worse. But uh, Conditioning-wise, they feel like he did the things he needed to do in the offseason. Uh, he and Riley both were dealing with injuries at the end of the year. Uh, Riley tweaked a knee late on, late in the season, and that kind of limited him down the stretch, and Camargo broke his shin, fouling a ball off his leg. So uh, not the year that those two guys wanted to have all total, all summed up and put together, but both guys with an incredible amount of potential. And Camargo defensively is better at third base than any other position. I think that'll help him out. Riley, I think, is probably about league average, but certainly capable. And these are two guys that they do believe can make an impact in one way, shape, or form. And one of them is going to have the opportunity, I think, to take the lion's share of that playing time. If Camargo has the inside track with a good spring, they could option Riley back to AAA and let him get regular bats, which might be the smartest thing to do until they need to break glass in case of emergency again, as they did with him last year. So both those guys, I think they're pretty confident on. But if you get to July and Chris Bryant's dangling out there and the Cubs are interested in dealing him, and that's a deal that the Braves could make, I think that's the kind of player that's worth sacrificing the prospects for to have that opportunity to win with him in 2020 and also win with him in 2021 before he hits free agency. So those rumors might not have really caught full fire just yet, and that's a name that we might circle back to if Chris Bryant is on the market come the trade deadline because I think it would make a ton of sense for the Braves if they're in a place to add a guy like that. 
Ozzy Albies was asked about Ronald Acuna making another run at 40-40 last week, and Albies said (laughs) he's talking about 50-50. And if Acuna's talking about 50-50, then I figure we should talk about 50-50. So should we even dare to dream that he could accomplish this? I love it. Um, I love the confidence. Those two guys are hilarious, and they have this great camaraderie. I mean, they don't even look at themselves as best friends. I think that they kind of go at this as, as brothers. Uh, they compete in all the best ways on the field, and I think off the field there's a, a level of just a, a kinship and a, a camaraderie that I think drives both of those guys to uh, play at their absolute best, so I'm thrilled that they're going to be around doing that for a long time. But, you know, 50-50, I, I was looking at it, I think Barry Bonds has hit 50 homers and stolen 50 bases in a season in his career, and then Brady Anderson, I could I didn't find him at the time, but I think those are the only two guys that have ever done it at any point in the career. But if Ronald Acuna Jr. feels like he can get there, then I would love to see it, but I'll, I'll take 40-40, though. If we got to settle for something, let's settle for 40-40. That'd be fine with me. Yeah, I, I kind of believe he could do it physically. It's just a question of, you know, in today's environment, players don't steal that many bases. And yeah. when a guy gets so valuable, he's hitting 50 homers, then it's almost like, do you even want to push it? Do you want to risk him, you know, stubbing a finger or something and trying to yeah. get to that milestone? And it's almost like he gets too good to <laughs> to take that chance. But boy, that would be pretty exciting. Yeah, he's a guy that can do it for sure. Let's uh, let's stay in the outfield for a second. Obviously, one of the big additions and on a deal that I think we were all kind of surprised didn't end up being longer was Marcelo Zuna. He's a big upgrade, <laughs> I think we can comfortably say, from Ender Inciarte and Adam Duvall. But he's also kind of an interesting player. He hits the ball very, very hard, and he's had a few really good seasons over the course of his career, but he's never quite hit like you would expect his underlying batted ball data to suggest. What do you think Atlanta is actually getting here? I think that they're getting a hitter who is probably the sum of, well, the sum, I say, is the average of his two years in St. Louis. A guy that, he's not a 245, 250 hitter. I think he's capable of more than that. But for sure, they're getting a 30 homer hitter. And I think that at the end of the day, once Donaldson went elsewhere and that pursuit didn't go uh, in the Braves' favor, they had to make some kind of move. I was really surprised that Ozuna took a one-year deal just based on the fact that he's 29 years old. Uh, it was reported that he had a multi-year offer from Cincinnati that uh, would have been for an excess of $50 million anyway over three years. And, you know, I, I'm guessing he just feels like there's more that he can prove this year, maybe similar to his 2017 season in Miami when he really exploded onto the scene and showed everybody that, hey, he might be one of the top outfielders in the National League. And he just didn't do that in his couple of years in St. Louis. But again, at 29, you know, he's betting on himself. The Braves obviously are betting on him. And uh, for his purposes, he essentially took a qualifying offer in terms of the money he got from the Braves, but he got to change addresses, so he doesn't have to worry about that qualifying offer thing next year. So right. it, it's going to be interesting to see what Marcelo Zuna shows up. I'm sure he'll be motivated. He played about 130 games last year and still hit 29 home runs and you know came close to 90 runs knocked in. I think those are they're very old school, traditional stats that you look at, and they they look great on paper, but I think that the exit velocities and the hard hit rates for Ozuna tell me that this is a guy that could do more damage than he's done uh, over the last couple of years. And, you know, maybe just uh, some better bat of ball luck would, would be a big difference for him. I don't know. But uh, yeah. I, lo- I love the signing, and I thought it was a creative way to plug a hole that the Braves definitely needed in the outfield and in yeah. the lineup. 
Yeah, he really fascinates me. You mentioned those StatCast stats. There was a great post by Ben Clemens at Fangraphs that we discussed when Ozuna signed, where Ben, based on a Birds on the Black blog post, speculated that, yes, Ozuna hits the ball hard and he hits the ball in the air, but maybe he sort of slices it and tends to hit it to the deep part of the park so he doesn't get the production you'd expect. So I'm really curious to see what his outcome stats look like this year. Yeah, for sure. So we're, you're going to have Acuna holding down center, you have Ozuna, and then there's Atlanta's ongoing fascination with Nick Markakis. <laughs> and I, I wonder how you expect this to shake out. Do you think that right field just ends up being some combination of him and then Duvall and Inciarte, or is there a chance that we're going to see some of the outfield prospects like Christian Pache in 2020? I'm going to actually throw out a different scenario that I would foresee being a real possibility, and that is that Marcelo Zuna is signed. He's your everyday left fielder. Ronald Acuna Jr. is obviously going to play every day, but I thought that Ronald last year looked so good in right field that perhaps that's a place where they would like to see him play long term because the games that he played out there, I don't know what it was. He wasn't a bad center fielder, but he wasn't a great center fielder either. And so maybe the comfort level of playing in right field would be something good for him that if if Inciarte comes back and is healthy, I, I, I like having a gold glove caliber center fielder. And if he's batting eighth and offensively has figured a couple things out, I like that outfield from a defensive perspective of you're not, Ozuna is not as bad as some of the highlights that we see, but he's certainly yeah. not, not great either. Ender's a great center fielder. And I think Ozuna has the opportunity to be a great right fielder. So I really feel like that might be an outfield. If healthy for Inciarte, you might see more of than you think because Marcakis is, Clearly not going to get any younger each and every year, but he has come back the last couple of off seasons, and I do think that he's a a valuable member of that team. But an everyday player at his age and with where the Braves are with some of the other players in camp, I just don't know if I see that in an, on an everyday basis. Now that they brought in Ozuna, a clear line for Marquez to get as many at bats because he doesn't play center field, and I think Enciarte might ultimately be the big wild card here because Pache and Waters both made it to. Triple-A Gwinnett last year, Drew Waters, a switch-hitting outfield prospect they have. But I still think that they have some parts of their offense to maybe uh, smooth out just a little bit. I mean, Waters strikes out a ton. Apache didn't really hit for much power, even though the Triple-A ball was apparently as lively as the big league ball. But I think they're going to see more time down there. And if Enciarte is healthy, I think he's the ultimate wild card here, barring a trade into how the Braves might deploy themselves because defense is going to be really important to them. And uh, Ender's proven himself. A three-time gold glover is a guy that can run him down. And if it allows Acuna to go over and play a, an above-average right field, which I think he can, that may be the best alignment they have. But where that leaves Marquecas and Duvall, that's a great question. According to Bill James's 3,000 hits uh, career assessments tool, Nick Marquecas has a 30% chance to get there still. I <laughs> kind of want to see it just to see what the discussion would look sure. like. So the last player I want to ask about is Freddie Freeman, who did not look like himself last October. And we know why. He had an elbow injury and he had elbow surgery in October. And he got two bone spurs removed, three bone fragments. Sounds very painful. So I don't know whether to be pessimistic because off-season elbow surgery, that sounds serious. Maybe that's the kind of thing that could linger. Or optimistic because evidently this is the first time that he's been without pain in his elbow for nine years, which is essentially his whole career. And the doctor told him that his elbow was in such bad shape that he didn't know how Freeman was even playing through it. So that makes me wonder, boy, if this is going to be Freeman fully physically intact for the first time, could he be even better or just as good as he's ever been at least? 
Yeah, and that's scary, isn't it, to have an idea that Freddie Freeman might not have been as good as he can be because <laughs> the numbers he's put up the last few years has made him, at least offensively speaking, one of the best first basemen in all of baseball. So I, I tend to think that this surgery clearly was nothing but a good thing. It was also necessary. Uh, they said that, or talking to Freeman at the FanFest event that they had last month, he said last year that he couldn't even use his right arm to wash his hair in the second half. So he was clearly in a lot of pain, and the doctors got in and found that there were two bone spurs and one that was pretty much going to break off at any time. And as soon as that happened, Freddie Freeman, even if the Braves advanced in the division series, his season very likely was over at that point. So uh, kudos to him for being a warrior and playing through this for all this time. But I, I would say that just from an outsider's perspective, I'm relieved that he's gotten this thing taken care of. And I think that, you know, he's reported full range of motion. He's in full baseball activities. They're not looking to hold him back in any way, shape, or form in spring training. And this is going to be a kind of a revived and refreshed Freddie Freeman that, you know, not only got the winner to, you know, go get himself, I guess, physically back and ready to play a new season of baseball, but also the one thing that's been bothering him uh, off and on for years and years is no longer a factor. So uh, I expect Freddie Freeman to put up Freddie Freeman type numbers, but if he has a career year on top of everything that uh, he's already accomplished, that would certainly be an added bonus of this elbow surgery. But as far as any worry or lingering doubt, I don't really have any right now. I kind of have to see him play and uh, see how it looks, but I think he's hoping he's had his last conversation with reporters about that elbow after the way his season ended last year and the tough division series that he had as well. I wonder whether, as we've been immersed in the sign-stealing scandals this offseason, you've noticed any similarities or, or differences when you think about the Braves' international signing scandal, which was sort of the last single-team-centric rule-breaking story that we've seen in baseball where there were significant penalties, and wonder whether you think the, the penalties kind of line up to the severity of the offenses in each case, or, or why, you know, if people are wondering, well, why did Jeff Luno get only a one-year suspension and John Cup? Lello got placed on the permanently ineligible list. What you think the the difference is there? Does it come down to cooperating with or resisting the investigation? Yeah, I think that that ultimately made things worse for John Copalella. But on the other hand, and I, I know we could probably spend the next three days dissecting fair or unfair enough or not enough on the Astros punishment, if you will. But I, I don't think that the punishment fit the crime in that respect. And especially, you know, looking at the Braves and what they went through from an international signing perspective, I understand needing to properly govern and police the international signing period and all the things that come with that and make sure that things are getting done properly. And if a team's not doing that or going outside the rules, I'm okay with them being punished for doing so. I think Copalello's punishment was worse because he didn't cooperate or flat out misled some of the investigation or maybe all of the investigation. For all we know, he's never spoken about it. But to look at what the Astros did and to see very tangibly how this thing can affect the on-the-field Major League product and get all the way to a team winning the World Series, and then to watch that press conference from a few days ago of the basically, hey, we want it, what about it kind of mentality that they've taken, this seems like a real miss for Major League Baseball. And you know, Braves punishment aside, internationally speaking, clearly that's affected the club's ability to go out and sign and produce talent in that market, and that doesn't help. But I'm very surprised that the Astros didn't get something uh, much harsher and much further reaching than what they got from the sign stealing thing, because we're going to be untangling this for years, I think. 
So this is another um, sort of off-field consideration. But last postseason, Cardinals pitcher Ryan Helsley, who's a member of the Cherokee tribe, raised objections to the Braves' use of the tomahawk chop. And the team responded, I think, by not handing out the foam tomahawks that they usually do. And they didn't play their music cue when he was on the mound. And then said in a statement at the time that we will continue to evaluate how we activate elements of our brand as well as the in-game experience and look forward to a continued dialogue with those in the Native American community once the season comes to an end. The Braves are hosting the All-Star Game in 2021, which is an event that led Cleveland to cease using Chief Wahoo in their marketing. So given all of those things, I'm kind of curious what the org's approach is going to be to activating elements of their brand in 2020 and going forward. I'm also curious to see what they do. The one thing that I have noticed that they've done is the hashtag, the social media hashtag that they'd used for a number of years was chop on. Yeah, they have it seems like that that's to, gone away. <laughs> yeah, they have changed that in their marketing or in their social media marketing to for the A, so obviously short for Atlanta. I grew up a Braves fan. I've lived in Georgia my whole life. I understand the origins of the Tomahawk Chop migrating from Florida State University because of Deion Sanders coming over to the Braves. Yeah, I have a lot of different memories about it, but you know, none of mine come from the side of things that any Native American organization is going to be looking at this from. And I do think that you need to be cognizant and understanding of the concerns that it seems like the more connected we become, especially online, the more that a lot of things and a lot of issues are raised and discussed in a manner in which I don't think that they ever have been before at any time in our society. So to make a very long story very short, I think they are going to continue trying to figure out where exactly the chop fits into their overall marketing and how they're looking to do that from a personal perspective on the amount of times that it's played at games, they could dial it back a good 50%, and it wouldn't hurt my feelings just because it gets played too much to begin with, but that's just from a totally benign personal opinion of how much a song is played. But from the overarching, uh, longer-lasting and, and further-reaching implications of playing that, they're going to have to make perhaps a very tough decision in the not too distant future about, you know, where that chapter of the franchise's lore and history and tradition might have to come to an end. Because I think that in large part, we owe it to ourselves to understand and appreciate and include the conversations of all of the possible people that something like that affects. Yeah. All right. So we have come to the prediction and you know the drill here. This is a, a tough division. Even the worst team in the division has gotten better this offseason. So it's going to be tight. Where do you think the Braves end up win total wise? And do they have a third straight division title in them? I'm going to predict that the Braves are going to win 93 games and that they are going to win the division again. Okay. That would be satisfactory to Braves fans, I would think. Be a good start. Yeah, that's true. They they do need to win a playoff series. It's been a while since the last, last one of those. You can find Grant on Twitter at Grant McCauley. You can also listen to the From the Diamond podcast, wherever you find podcasts. That comes out weekly. It's not just about the Braves. It's also about the rest of baseball. You can also find that at FromTheDiamond.com, where he has done his annual Braves positional previews. So, Grant, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. I enjoy it, and I look forward to doing it again in the not-too-distant future, or at the very least, maybe in 2021. All right. Thanks. Thanks, guys. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Megan Montemuro to talk about the Phillies.
right, we are back. It is time to talk Phillies, and we are joined now by Megan Montemuro, who covers the Phillies for The Athletic Philadelphia. Hey, Megan. Hey. So the Phillies have a, a bit of a new look this year, certainly in the coaching staff and the manager. Last year's staff is out. Gabe Kapler, John Maley, Chris Young, all gone. Joe Girardi is in now, and new hitting and pitching coaches. So to what extent were the old ones fall guys for underperforming players or front office mistakes? And to what extent were they seen as responsible for the underperforming players or breakdowns in communication or strategy or, or anything else? Yeah, I think it was really a mixture of issues that ultimately led to the changes. I mean, it's been pretty well documented that team president Andy McPhail and general manager Matt Contact both wanted to keep Gabe. And really, it ended up being the principal owner, John Middleton, who made the decision for a fresh voice and obviously a more veteran leader in Joe Girardi. And if you look at the the other people they interviewed for, Dusty Baker and Buck Showalter, clearly they put a premium on veteran experience in the dugout. So I do think there were issues. You had not only a guy in Gabe whose only previous managing experience had been a year managing a minor league team in the Red Sox organization years ago. And you look at the pitching coach, Chris Young, he had never been a pitching coach at the big league level or really any level until he went from assistant pitching coach in 2018 to the head job last year. So there were, there were definitely some breakdowns in communication between the coaching staff, players, there was frustration with the pitching staff and the way they tried to implement a uniform approach and philosophy across the board where they really honed in on guys like Nick Pavetta and Zach Eflin and Vince Velasquez trying to pound the top of the strike zone with fastballs. And that was not a strategy that the three of them could consistently replicate. So you had all those issues. You had a crazy number of injuries to the bullpen, to most of their key guys. And so it was just a real collection of things that they couldn't overcome. And there was disappointment that they ended up only being a 500 team last year. You know, you don't sign guys like Bryce Harper and have a lot of guys in the prime of their careers and acquire JT Real Muto to go 500 and miss the playoffs again. So right. there, there definitely was a little more urgency from ownership. And really, I mean, the, the front office is kind of on the line this, this season. They, they cannot afford to have another 500 or worse season. They need to be competitive and threatened for a playoff spot. Yeah, back-to-back late season swoons and a 500 record mm-hmm. after making big investments. That's a, that's a recipe for people losing their jobs often. But I right. am kind of curious about the decision to go with Girardi. So you mentioned it's kind of going from inexperience to experience. But mm-hmm. I guess in terms of style or, or temperament, it's, it's not quite like going from Terry Francona to Larry Boa or Larry Boa to Charlie Manuel. It seems like too mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know, detail-oriented. I don't know if they're strict but not guys who are really known as big players managers or just joking around they seem somewhat serious so has camp been at all different with Joe Girardi is it a significant change from the Kepler era I mean I do think there is a kind of like a more calm vibe mm-hmm. um, I mean you, you're being led by a guy who knows how to win has won a world series thrived in you know the biggest market that you can with a team that is always under scrutiny. And so I do think there is a comfort level that comes with that uh, within the clubhouse. And, you know, they know they're talented. They have talent on this team. There are certainly question marks about them, but, you know, at, at its core, they have guys that are capable of winning them a lot of games. And so I do think that, 
you know, it, there is a more little normal vibe, I guess, you know, cause Gabe was an outside the box tire. I mean, he did things in kind of a unique style sometimes. So I do think there is a little more normalcy to camp. You know, Girardi's a guy that doesn't start camp early. Um, pretty much workouts have been starting around 10 30 and 11 this past week. So, you know, I do think there is a little different vibe and I think that's kind of needed. I think they needed a fresh voice and perspective and you're, you're going to have that too. And a guy in Brian Price, who's their pitching coach now, and, you know, he has big league managing experience too. So I definitely think the experience in, in that sense rubs off a bit in the environment. I'm curious what the perception of Bryce Harper's first season in Philadelphia was. And I, I will preface this by saying that the affect of Philly's fans on Twitter is perhaps not representative of his actual performance on the field. <laughs> um, I think there were some stretches where he wasn't hitting quite as well as you might have expected, but he ended up accumulating almost five wins by our war and ended the season with a 125 WRC plus and 35 home runs. So And he was clutch. Yeah, he was yeah, had some had some big moments. So I'm curious what the perception in Philly is of his first season and sort of what the expectations are for him going into twenty twenty. Yeah, I think generally fans were pretty happy with what they saw from him last year. I mean, you saw the hustle. He had quite a few hustle doubles where, you know, it looked like he had a single off the bat and he wound up diving into second base. That's gonna win over fans. He certainly had some great moments at the plate. I think he impressed people with his defense in right field. I mean he was a gold glove finalist for very good reason out there. And so, yeah, he had a couple of slumps, you know, over the course of the season, but you, you look at his numbers with runners on base. I mean, he was very effective for them. And, and one of the few guys where he was capable of carrying the offense for stretches last year. And, and given how problematic the offense was, a lot more of fans frustrations were directed at a guy like Reese Hoskins rather than Harper. So I think, you know, fans, of course, want to see a little bit more from him going into 2020. But I, I don't think if you look at it objectively, you can really find many holes overall in what he did in his first season. It was, you know, cumulatively one of the better ones of his career. And what is the state of his outfield mate, Andrew McCutcheon's knee? This was a really unfortunate. I think we were all disappointed for any number of reasons to see him go down with injury, uh, not the least of which because he was having a really solid year and was coming back and everyone loves Kutch. Where's he at in his uh, sort of progression to being ready to play this season? Yeah, so the plan is that they're probably going to ease him into to game action during camp. Girardi was talking the other day that, especially for some veteran guys, you know, they he feels that you usually only need maybe three weeks or so to really get into to game ready mode. So they're definitely going to be cautious. I know McCutcheon is always taking pride in being a guy who plays almost every single game. And that probably won't be the case, at least in April, I would expect him to be cautious, but um, talking to him two weeks ago, you know, he is still expecting to be ready for opening day. Now, again, you know, what does that exactly mean? I don't know if that means he's going to be playing every single day, especially when they have somebody like Jay Bruce on the roster who can play left field as well. But it would not be a surprise if, if he is on the opening day roster and starting for them game one in Miami. So Zach Wheeler was the big ticket item this winter. Why do you think they decided to invest so heavily in him? What do they like about him? And did they consider spreading that money around to other areas? Maybe they did add Didi Gregorius, of course. Or did they get into the running at all for some of the very, very top tier, you know, top three or four free agents just uh, above Wheeler? Yeah, I think there were a couple, there were definitely a couple of factors that went into it. You look at 
how the Phillies have developed talent and, you know, outside of Aaron Nola, who I think was, you know, pretty can't miss coming out of LSU and was very refined. They really haven't done a great job in developing homegrown pitching talent. Uh, They have a guy in Spencer Howard that they expect to contribute this year, but, you know, they really looking long-term don't have a a ton of internal options that really profile as top rotation kind of guys. So looking at Wheeler and understanding, you know, you also had the market out there for Strasburg and Garrett Cole, you know, I think it was impressive and definitely benefited them by kind of striking early and in, in, in a sense um, by signing Wheeler to that deal. And I think it, it does give them a good one-two combination with Nola at the top. And I think that's, that consistency is something they have missed the last couple of years, especially because Arietta has missed time in the first two years of his deal. So the opportunity for consistency, they saw that as a way to potentially help the bullpen as well. And if you have a guy that, you know, you can count on outside of Aaron Nola to, to give you six innings, seven innings regularly, um, that has the domino effect of taking some pressure off their bullpen. So that was certainly appealing. And in terms of really kind of going after the top tier, you know, I think, I mean, they've made pretty clear that they were intending to stay under the luxury tax threshold. And so for them to pursue one of those top three agents, they would definitely have to go over that. So that definitely played into their thinking in the off season and really why, you know, after signing Wheeler and Gregorius, they really didn't uh, sign anybody else too notable. I mean, they brought in a lot of veterans on non-roster invite deals, but beyond that, the priority really has been, is going to be leading into the season in uh, signing Real Muto to an extension. So beyond those moves, they kind of have stuck to their guns. And so I think that's why you saw them, you know, kind of be more aggressive with Wheeler and that really set the tone for the rest of the off season. Yeah, and I know your colleague Matt Gelb just wrote about the luxury tax and had some quotes from Andy McPhail there. And I wonder what you think Phillies fans think of this on the whole, whether they're satisfied with the level of spending and aggressiveness, if any fan base ever is. Not that they've been, you know, the the Cubs or the Rockies or or something this offseason. They've been pretty active these last two winters, but they did sort of decide to sit out the trade deadline last year, more or less saying (laughs) that it wasn't really worth it because uh, they didn't think they could do better than a wild card spot, which, you know, maybe was true, but I think people were somewhat upset about that at the time. And then I guess not splurging on a coal or Strasburg this winter. Is that something that has been frustrating given that the team hasn't made the playoffs in a while and this is kind of the time to push? Yeah. I mean, based on my Twitter mentions, Philly fans are not happy with that (laughs) approach, you know, especially after seeing them invest the amount of money they did in Harper last March. So I can certainly understand that point. And to me, I think it's more telling that, you know, ownership doesn't necessarily have full confidence in what this team is, or maybe you can even extend that to the front office. I mean, if if you have to wait and see what this team can do in the first three months of the season before you're willing to go over the luxury tax threshold, well, to me, that's saying, you know, you don't think you have a team that is either, you know, a front runner to win, to win the division or that you feel like they're capable of making a deep run into the postseason. So I certainly think there are implications to their decision to not go over it. And they can make the argument that, well, okay, we can upgrade the roster and go over the tax come trade deadline but you know you look, I think last year is a perfect blueprint of you know the upgrades that you can make in the off season can have a positive effect in those first three seasons you can't assume that you're going to be able to make the upgrades and improvements you need at the trade deadline and they might not even be up in that position if they don't you know play well the first few weeks of the season so I think it's it's pretty interesting and 
really kind of reaffirms that, you know, this front office, they, they need this team to win. Otherwise, you could definitely see some job loss come the offseason. Yeah, it seems like, as we've discussed, like one of those places that they might need to make some upgrades midseason is to the the back end of the rotation. I, I'm curious about two things. One, when you think we will see Spencer Howard coming up, and also sort of what the current thinking on Jake Arietta and his sort of position in this team and how useful he's going to be this year. We've seen his production sort of flag in a way that I think was probably predictable in the front end of that deal and made the exercise of the option on his end pretty pretty understandable. But where is the back end of that rotation and sort of how soon do you think we're going to see Spencer Howard? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly question marks with the back end and it, it makes it particularly interesting that uh, they didn't sign any veteran to a non-roster deal to bring them into camp. So they're really banking on either some of the young depth at AAA or really, you know, the Zach Eflin, Nick Pavetta, Vince Velasquez trio for, for two of those three to make an impact in the early goings of the season. And as for Spencer Howard, they've made it clear that he's going to be on some sort of an innings limit this year. How they really actually plan that out will be interesting to see you know he tweaked his knee about a week ago so he hasn't thrown off a mound yet so there's a good excuse right there to take him slowly you could definitely see a scenario where when minor league camp breaks you know maybe he stays back in Florida and builds up down there and they're going to wait too like when he does pitch innings you know, what's the level of stress that will influence how many total innings he makes over the years. So I would not be surprised if, you know, he doesn't arrive to the big leagues late May, sometime in June, because they're definitely going to be conservative with how much they push him. He's only pitched over 100 innings barely once in his career, and that came last year. So they're definitely going to be cautious in how they push him this year. So they're definitely counting on him, though. And in the meantime, they're really going to need Pavetta and Blasters in particular to step up in the back end. So you mentioned that the bullpen last year was kind of a disaster area and lots of injuries and some of those players are still not going to be available like David Robertson. Mm -hmm. But have there been indications that Joe Girardi is really going to manage the bullpen in sort of a Yankees-style way, which has been to really keep a a tight leash on guys, not let them pitch back-to-back-to-back days, the idea being that you keep them fresh for the end of the year and maybe you can prevent some injuries. There's an essay in the new Baseball Prospectus Annual by Gerald Schiffman that looks at the effect of fatigue on relievers and going in back-to-back or back-to-back-to-back days, and he found that there is a drop-off in, say, strikeout rate and fastball velocity and everything. And that's without accounting for the injury risk that uh, is evidently there. So do we think that the Phillies are going to run the bullpen in a similar fashion? Yeah, I mean, Girardi's talked about that quite a bit, not only during the offseason, but so far in camp. And he's been pretty adamant that he is going to continue to stay away from using guys three days in a row, which is interesting in the Phillies case, because a lot of their most proven arms come are coming back into the season with a lot of question marks. You have Sir Anthony Dominguez, who, who injured his UCL and at least so far has avoided Tommy John surgery. And so they're slowly working him up. And Girardi hasn't ruled out potentially a scenario where in April, you know, maybe he doesn't pitch on back-to-back days. So <laughs> that's going to hamstring the bullpen a little bit. You have a guy in Tommy Hunter that they re-signed who is still working back from, from his arm issue. Adam Morgan, his season ended early. So, I mean, they're really banking on a lot of these guys bouncing back health-wise. And, you know, it sounds like Girardi's going to be very disciplined in how he uses the bullpen. I mean, he basically said that 
you know, they're going to be end up counting on nine to 15 different guys over the course of the season. He's a firm believer that you have to factor in, you know, the length of the season and keeping guys fresh for, you know, September, October and a playoff push. So it'll be interesting to see if he sticks to his guns on that because the injuries were certainly a big issue last year. And, you know, kind of circling back to Meg mentioning Arietta, I mean, you know, he in some ways is the linchpin of this rotation because if they have a third guy that is consistently giving them six innings, that will make a huge difference. I mean, they really had, that was part of the issue last year is they had starters going four or five innings. And so you're having to throw out so many relievers on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, if Arietta can give him consistent length and stay healthy and show a little bit more of the version that he was even in 2018 with the Phillies before he had the knee issue, I mean, that will pay off in the bullpen and not having to use guys and, and staying away from overworking a guy like Hector Neris, who over the past four years has been one of the best relievers in baseball. So it'll be interesting if, if Girardi really does follow through with that, but everything he said so far sounds like he will. This is sort of a thorny one given some of the uh, roster considerations that aren't about the baseball, but let's talk about center field a little bit. Obviously, this is sort of a position in transition, I guess, is the most generous way of describing it uh, for the Phillies. Clearly, they're not going to be relying on Adugo Herrera. What is the current state of affairs in the outfield, at least when it comes to center? Yeah, so really, I mean, they've kind of made clear, these, and by they, I really mean uh, general manager Matt Klintak has made clear the entire offseason that Adam Hazley, their former first round pick who got complaint time last year after Herrera was put on the restricted list and suspended, that he's going to have every opportunity to take down most of the reps in center field. And for them, it's kind of twofold. You know, you, you got to find out what you have in him. He's, he's a younger player. He's a left-handed bat. And I'm sure they'll find some opportunities to kind of limit him to tough matchups, but he, he took a step forward in his defense last year And then you also have Roman Quinn, who is a dynamic player, at least can be, if he can stay healthy. That's been the biggest issue his entire career. He's yet to make it through a season fully healthy. But that's something where, you know, this 26-man bench can really benefit the Phillies because a guy like Roman Quinn, he can steal bases, he can play great defense and cover a lot of ground in center field. So they're really going to be rolling with those two guys. Maybe they would have you know, considered putting McCutcheon out there a little bit pre-injury, but given that, you know, he's expected to stay solely in left field. So really it's going to be Hazley and Quinn that they're going with in center field. And they're definitely going to be relying on some youth. And at some point you definitely could probably see Scott Kingery out in center field, depending on the timeline of Alec Bohm and, you know, when they feel like he might be ready to play third base. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how they handle it and what kind of leash they give a guy like Adam Hazley, who really doesn't have that big of a track record. Yeah, that was going to be my my next question. We've obviously seen various infielders uh, moonlight as outfielders for this team over the years. And now we have a bit more clarity on the infield, right? So Segura is going to shift to second, Gregorius, old man, short. Uh, we have Hoskins at first and Kingry at third. What do you think the timeline looks like for Baum coming up? Because obviously that's going to shift some of this around. They have a, a bunch of corner infielders who might need to find new homes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely interesting. And I think it helps, you know, maybe they would have been more tempted to, to potentially push him a little bit if they still had Michael Franco at third base. But, you know, when you have Segura and Kingery at, at second and third, however they end up being positioned, you don't necessarily have to push him. And I definitely think that the Phillies, 
we'll adopt the philosophy of, you know, play well enough to force us to call you up. You know, he raked at double A last year. It'll be interesting to see if he can carry that over into triple A for, you know, a little bit of an extended stretch. And I think the big thing is too, they need to see, can he play third base defensively at the major league level? There's definitely opinions split around the league as to whether he can stay there long-term. And so I think, you know, they need to get a, a better read as to, you know, how long can, can we realistically keep him at third base? And I, I think, too, it helps that Kingery can play so many different positions that, you know, you, you don't feel like you're forcing him, you know, into a bad spot defensively. He can, he can really play anywhere in the field. So, yeah, I think if you're the Phillies, you, you let Bohm force the issue and, and make you call him up. Yeah, and Kingery really bounced back from that rough rookie year and was basically a league average hitter last year, a valuable player. Mm -hmm. Is there a hope that there's even more in his bat for 2020? Yeah, definitely. And I think the big thing is, too, is even with the strides that he made offensively last year, he was doing that even though his strikeout total and his strikeout rate went up from his rookie year, which is a little scary to think about since that rookie year was so rough for him. But I do think that it'll be interesting to see what the new hitting coach, Joe Dillon, can do in terms of maybe closing some of those holes in his swing, cutting down on some of his chasing. And even talking to him at the end of last season, you know, he was intrigued at the idea of, you know, if I play one spot defensively, will that help me offensively? Because, you know, you're not going to be worrying about where you might be playing any given day. You know where you're going to be. And I think there is something to that consistency that he hasn't had his first two years in the big league. So, Certainly the Phillies believe that there's more in his game and I'll be interested in seeing if if those numbers, his power numbers in particular, continue to to improve as well. You mentioned at the beginning of this that there is there does seem to be an appetite for an extension for Real Muto. What where do the where do they stand on that right now? Like how much progress has actually been made there? And do you expect that that's something that they will get done or does he look to test free agency? Yeah, really they're they're waiting for this arbitration case to be over with um, his real Muto's hearing is set for this week in Arizona. So once that gets situated, you know, it sounds like both sides will kind of reconvene and see if they can hammer something out. It, it seems like there's both, uh, both sides have mutual interest in getting something done. It'll just be interesting to see, you know, if it drags on closer to opening day or if something doesn't get done before opening day, you know, will real Muto you know, cut off conversations until the end of the season, you know? So, I mean, the Phillies really cannot afford to not re-sign him. I mean, even if you, you forget about giving up their top pitching prospects at the time, I mean, I think he showcased last year how valuable he can be. And he still, I think even has room to be better offensively than he was a year ago. So they really cannot afford to screw this up. And yeah, there's definitely mutual interest in getting something done. One thing it seems like the Phillies have had success in the last couple of seasons is helping their catchers improve their receiving skills. So in 2018, it was Jorge Alfaro who got better as a framer. And then in 2019, Real Muto had his best year as a framer. And that was kind of the only thing that he wasn't already really good at when the Phillies got him. And I guess that is largely attributable to their former catching coach, Craig Driver, who was hired by the Cubs over this winter, I guess, to try to do the same for Wilson Contreras, who has had issues with receiving. So how have they had that effect on those catchers? And do you think that's something that can continue without Driver? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's something that they had been emphasizing for a while in terms of, you know, once they had a more athletic catcher in Alfaro, you know, it gave them a little bit more to work with. He has so much natural talent defensively. And then obviously you definitely have those same attributes in Real Muto and he really wanted to improve. And, you know, they have a former catcher in Dusty Watson on the staff. Um, he's He works with the catchers as well. And, you know, there, there was definitely, you know, these past couple of years, a constant presence in terms of the drills that they would do with catchers on the half fields during camp and really honing in on the minutia and the small details. And, you know, I don't think that is certainly going to go away just because um, they don't have Craig Driver anymore. It's going it's to still be emphasized and it'll be interesting to see. You know, if, if he's still able to find, you know, little small areas on the defensive side of his game to continue to, to improve because he was very, watching him on a daily basis last year, you know, I think, I think it kind of got lost playing for the Marlins, just how special of a talent Real Muto is. So it'll be interesting to see if he's, he's able to still take even another step forward in his game. Yeah, and speaking of optimizing player performance, you wrote recently about how the Phillies have invested in their sports science department. So can you explain what they have done behind the scenes and then also how that fits into the larger trend in the game? Because the Phillies are not the only team investing in that area. Right, yeah. I mean, I think sports science has kind of been an evolving thing over the last few years, especially when it comes to wearable technology and all the different metrics and data teams can gather nowadays, you know, whether it was, whether it's been through trackman data or, you know, doing more bat sensor type things. Like it's, it's kind of crazy all the stuff that you can measure nowadays. But so for the Phillies before this off season, they did not have a dedicated sports science department in the front office. So during this off season, it became a priority to create one. And it was something that they had discussed uh, launching last offseason. They even got to the point of doing interviews for these kind of roles during spring training, but they just felt like it wasn't, there wasn't enough time really to do it. So this past offseason, they created the Integrated Baseball Performance Department, in which uh, Sam Fold is now the director of. So basically, his role in the department's role, which has a total of four employees right now, is they work with like under, under their umbrella would basically be nutrition, strength and conditioning, training staff. So all of that stuff now is kind of funneled through this new sports science department. And really it's to, you know, help kind of create specific player plans. Ideally, the goal is to eventually get to the point where they have a profile, a plan for every player in the organization. Obviously, that'll take time to develop. But really, you know, you can see, especially on the minor league side, how stuff like this could really help. And so, you know, they hope that it helps with injury prevention, like better understanding fatigue uh, and how that affects performance. And so it's certainly a big undertaking. And so, you know, Fold's really going to be the guy that is in charge of pulling this all together. They really wanted to have more structure and an environment that they could pull all these pieces together and, and run things more efficiently through the sub from the sub departments and you know the coaches are going to be involved and, and looping on all this stuff so it's, it's really interesting and kind of in conjunction with that they really overhauled the medical training staff they brought in a new head trainer a new assistant trainer um, for the first time they're going to have a full-time physical therapist so they've really done some comprehensive things in an attempt to to really 
you know, <laughs> keep up with all the technology and just this movement through baseball that, you know, kind of if you don't have this, you're, you're behind the eight ball at this point. Yeah. And last year, as the league as a whole suffered another small attendance decline, the Phillies had a big attendance boost and gained almost Mm. 600,000 fans. So was that just a Bryce Harper bounce? Were there other things responsible for that? And do you think they can sustain it after another disappointing finish? Oh, yeah. I mean, the ticket sales after the Bryce Harper announcement and the news broke that he was signed with the Phillies just went through the roof to the point where like, package plans for tickets were selling out. So yeah, he, he had a huge impact on that. Obviously trading for Real Muto last offseason obviously helped as well. It'll be interesting. I mean, I think for this year, you're going to, I would not be surprised to see smaller crowds in April and May until this team proves to fans that they're worth watching. I mean, you get burned, you know, two consecutive years and specifically two consecutive Septembers with disappointment and bad play, you know, it, it might be a hard sell to, to get fans excited again. I mean, I, I do think there is a Girardi factor and there's a trust factor in fans that <laughs> this guy knows what he's doing, but I do think it's going to take some time to, to win some fans back after how frustrating the last two years were. All right. Well, this is the last question. As always, we always ask for a win total prediction. So I guess uh, the question is, will the Phillies do enough to win fans back? How many games will they end up winning? Yeah, this is tough. I think it's going to be a really competitive division, obviously. For me, I'm going to I'm going to say they win 88 games. Mm-hmm. I think I think I think Girardi and, you know, having a new pitching coach and a new hitting coach and fresh voices are worth a few wins on their own and assuming they can avoid, you know, serious injury again, I think they have the talent to, to compete for a playoff spot. I don't know if 88 wins is going to get that in that in in the National League, but it might be enough to you know save front office jobs as long as they are competitive and don't have another September collapse. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you can follow the Phillies' season at the Athletic Philadelphia, where Megan writes, and you can find her on Twitter at m underscore Montemuro. Thank you very much, Megan. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, that will do it for today. Thank you for listening. By the way, in episode 1500, my last pick in our draft of things I like about baseball was when baseball people before the advent of win value stats would say that certain players were worth 15 wins or 20 wins, some unreasonably high number. I gave five examples in that episode, but listener Lillian in Germany reminded me of a sixth, which was actually Fire Joe Morgan in December 2005, when then Twins manager Ron Gardenhire said he's worth 15 15 wins, potentially, of Luis Castillo. We lost 31 run games last year with Luis's ability to get on base, steal bases, score runs, and play defense. A guy like that can make a difference in at least half those one-run games going the other way. Which I guess would be true, potentially, if Luis Castillo could concentrate all of his production in one-run games only, but you can't really do that. So Luis Castillo was worth more like two to three wins at that time. Pretty good player, but not quite worth 15. I will also direct your attention to a new long interview in The New Yorker with one of the patron saints of this podcast, Roger Angel. Now 99 years old, yet equipped with a memory that would put most people to shame, I will link to that on the show page. Go check it out. Long live Roger. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. 
the following five listeners have already pledged their support and signed up to contribute some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Dan Laidman, Aiden Jackson Evans, Klaus Vestergaard, Kelvin Brum, and Sarah Cumby. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Supposedly, it boosts us up the rankings and helps us find new listeners, but it's also just fun for us to read a kind review. You can contact us via email at podcast at or by sending us a message through the Patreon site if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with our next episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Fake Tattoo Inventor. Mr. Fake Tattoo Inventor. Through the miracle of hypoallergenic adhesives, you transform us from mild-mannered accountant into roadhouse biker hooligan. Hooligan. Be it screaming skull or thrashing tiger, you've got a temporary alter ego for any occasion. Flaming dragons. What else says, I love you, Mom, like a heart with a sword through it? You know I love you, Mama. So crack open an ice-cold Bud Light, Mr. Fake Tattoo Inventor Guy. We may not have been born to ride, but thanks to you, we can feel like it. Thank you, Mr. Fake Tattoo Inventor. Bud Light Beer at Isaac Bush, St. Louis, Missouri.